Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. My name is Jay Swords. This is the 392nd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Michael Schneider, Dr. Michael Schneider, uh, Professor of History, Provost, and Dean of the College of Knox College. And we're going to be talking about women leaders in diplomacy across the Pacific. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsavital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farukta Naran, and today we'll be talking about women leaders in diplomacy across the Pacific with Dr. Michael Schneider, Professor of History, Provost and Dean of the College at Knox College. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm delighted to speak with you tonight. Appreciate it. Uh, can you give our listeners a little background on the historical role of women in diplomacy in the Pacific region? Yeah, so the, the article that I have been working, had been working on was really inspired by trying to look at kind of the last arc of 100 years. Uh, but as historians sometimes do, I started in the present um, where I was observing the fact that and this is likely a trend to continue, that we had a number of important sort of transitions into women playing important leadership roles on both sides of the Pacific, um, something of a new historical trend. That is to say, you had the first female Japanese foreign minister in 2001. Um, of course, the United States, a Pacific nation, we should all remember. Um, you had Madeleine Albright as the uh, first female um, secretary of state um, in um, the United States, um, followed subsequently by um, Condoleezza Rice and, of course, Hillary Clinton in that role. And as we know, or at least has been projected, um, we may know uh, by the time you hear this, um, that uh, Susan Rice is projected as a potential um, Biden um, administration secretary of state. Um, and you also had um, prominent um, uh, women in leadership in, in, the, in Taiwan, um, and the first uh, pr uh, president, um, female president in South Korea, uh, Park Geun-hye, who was the uh, daughter of a, of a famous politician. So in this period of kind of the last 20 years, you've seen a number of um, women sort of firsts in the period of diplomacy. And that's where I kind of started um, my thinking is what does this say about the last however many hundred years of diplomacy in this region? Okay. Okay. Um my question was, I, I loved your article, by the way. It was very cool, very informative. This is not a, an area that I'm really strong in, uh, modern history. But I, I found it interesting that, that very early on in your article, you're, you're very quick to sort of point out that just because we have women in these kind of leadership roles doesn't mean that women have greater um, authority in devising policy or that this shows um, significant changes in uh, sort of gender ideas within the, the countries that they're representing. Um, so I, I just thought I'd, I'd ask you to kind of comment a little bit more on that and what kinds of trends you see that, that you know, what, what is or isn't going on with the fact that, that these uh, ladies are being put in, in these positions of power. 
Yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's a an interesting question. The kind of question we'll debate for an extremely long time. But but I think one of the key points that I wanted to make is that it reflects uncertainty. And what I mean by that, it, it reflects um, that the system of diplomacy. What are the patterns of diplomacy? Are themselves under some kind of churn or under some kind of change? Um, and one way you can see this is. Um, and this is kind of inspiration for the work, looking back 100 years earlier, you see the same kind of uncertainty. So, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we have, is when you've seen this trend of women in, in foreign policy, and this is true in other European states um, as well, and it's, it's the product of a long social transformation, women in important diplomatic posts, in, you know, in lower rungs. Um, but I think it also speaks to a kind of evolving sense of the, the multilateral and complex nature of diplomacy. And if one were to look 100 years ago, and I know you, you in fact had a podcast on the 19th um, Amendment, at that time, the debate over women's suffrage elevated this notion of, of women playing a prominent and different role in foreign policy. And this was an argument that was extremely prominent um, among men. Um, actually, <laughs> women also said it, but men also said, you know, our foreign policy needs to somehow be fixed. It needs to be improved. Um, and this was a conception that was very strong 100 years ago, precisely because you were in a, in a similar period of rapid transformation in foreign policy. You'd had the end of the First World War, um, the carnage of the First World War, people searching for something, a kind of a new path. And so the post-Cold War period has been like that. And I would say we're still in it. That is, say, we're still looking for um, a, a kind of a new type or new style of diplomacy, or just even where the location, where the locus of power is in our diplomacy. And it's no more, no less complicated in East Asia. And that's why I focused on specifically the Pacific region, because of all of the uncertainty or the different questions of diplomacy that rack East Asia, frankly, to this very day in this post-Cold War period. And so I think the presence of women reflects that uncertainty, that kind of search for new ways of doing diplomacy. Okay, could you give our listeners some example of that uncertainty that you're talking about? And um, obviously with the article, um, how you think women are, are going about trying to make these changes? Well, let me focus on Japan in particular. Okay. So, you know, in 2000, and there are many examples of this, but, you know, in 2001, um, it, it, it may be hard for people of a certain age to remember this. This has happened right before... Um, frankly, the, um, the September 11th attacks that we know so well, um, there was a rise of a new prime minister in Japan, a very flamboyant sort of guy, um, very much in a kind of a different mold from the stodgy, you know, bureaucratic type of uh, prime minister in Japan. And he was looking for someone to kind of shake up the bureaucracy. And so he picked a woman named Tanaka Makiko, who was a formidable politician herself in the, the Japanese uh, parliament, um, and you know, educated in the United States, you know, skillful politician in lots of ways. She was kind of a symbol of that kind of shaking up of Japanese diplomacy, which was pretty kind of moribund at the time. Well, after the September 11th attacks, um, Japan, Japanese foreign policy was thrown into a kind of chaos, one might say, because during... Um, in earlier years, Japan has a strong pacifist constitution. They do not participate in you know, multilateral military interventions. But Japan just didn't want to be left in the sidelines after the 2001 attacks. So she became kind of a, a, 
a symbol of this attempt to kind of reinvigorate or make Japan's foreign policy um, be more kind of participatory in the national um, stage. Um, similarly, um, in uh, in South Korea, uh, Park Geun-hye, um, who was who elevated to the, the, the presidency, um, she was seen as maybe a chance to kind of move past the north-south division. You know, she was going to be sort of kind of a pragmatist, someone who could take a different approach um, to the north-south divide in Korea. Um, again, these are issues that are still, you know, afflicting us um, today, um, but they kind of represent that, that women are, are seen as, um, you know, potentially a, a kind of different style of diplomacy. And the reason is, is in part because they have strong internationalist connections. In the case of many of these, these East Asian um, individuals, they have strong international credentials. They speak English very well, or they have a, a, a kind of international reputation. Um, it's similarly uh, complicated on the U.S. side. So everyone from Madeleine Albright through Condoleezza Rice and, and, and Hillary Clinton, um, you know, where, who's driving American foreign policy? Is it a military foreign policy? Is it economic foreign policy? Or is it kind of a cultural diplomacy? Is the United States a great cultural power? And all of these individuals kind of represented that you know, internationalist um, background. I mean, Madeleine Albright was an, um, uh, is an immigrant. Condoleezza Rice was a, a, a scholar um, in um, Cold War politics, um, and so on. So these individuals bring really a kind of a, you know, formidable credentials, but to try to provide maybe a kind of um, new perspective or a new kind of cultural diplomacy perspective on what is the nature of their, the power of these various states. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Michael Schneider, Professor of History, Provost, and Dean of the College at Knox College. And we're talking about women leaders in diplomacy across the Pacific. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, as a guy who started out in poli-sci, you get the first question. Yes, and I stayed in poli-sci, didn't I, Jay? Uh, Michael, I, uh, you made a comment in the first uh, segment that uh, women uh, can or uh, will uh, take it a different approach to uh, diplomacy, and particularly in East Asia, uh, uh, where there's a major cultural divide between the West and Asia. Uh, is this true? And if so, what kind of impact has it had, good or bad, on on uh, diplomatic activity? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the, the things that's interesting about cultural diplomacy is it's it usually happens while we're not really paying attention or it or it kind of rises in prominence um, and and kind of moves things along. And, you know, if you look over the last hundred years in, you know, U.S. East Asian relations, there are these certain figures or certain individuals who kind of rise up very prominently and 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 they kind of advanced um kind of people's perceptions of of um the two countries um so for example there were times when there was um great tension uh between the United States and Japan and invariably there would be some kind of cultural diplomacy that went on to kind of soothe or smooth relations um one way this expressed itself is you would have kind of groups of women, you know, uh, on both sides of the Pacific meeting to try to soothe tensions. Um, and so there was, in a, you know, there have been very large kind of uh, uh, women's conferences um, in various parts of the Pacific. 1928, there's a big one in Honolulu that, that everyone, anyone who's anyone in the international women's peace movement shows up at this. And it, the idea is that that there's a lot of tensions across the Pacific, but this will kind of slow things down. Now we know we end up getting a war uh, between the United States and Japan, but but the belief was that women could somehow um, sort of soothe these tensions. Um, I will just throw in, it's not really specifically related to women um, in diplomacy, but um, baseball is another one of these examples of cultural diplomacy that kind of, you know, goes back and forth every time when you look back in history every time there's some kind of tensions between for example japan and the united states well what do they have in common baseball and so you have tours of japanese baseball teams in the united states and and uh, you know babe ruth goes to japan in 1936 so on that that this is another example of that cultural diplomacy. Women play a prominent role there. Another really prominent example is um, Madame Zhang Kai-shek, or Sung, Sung Mei-ling. She was the wife of the uh, nationalist leader of China during the Second World War, Zhang Kai-shek. Um, she was educated in the United States, and her, even her English um, had a kind of a Georgian accent, and so she was a kind of a real charmer for the American political view who was, you know, kind of watching the war that emerged between Japan and China during the 1930s, not really choosing sides, even though we were kind of on the Chinese side. Um, but she was sort of, you know, again, with a kind of a vague, you know, Georgian lilt to her voice. You know, she got to speak in front of Congress. She was kind of a better spokesperson than any other person was for the, the Chinese nationalist government in terms of bolstering kind of American um, favor or support for China at a time when the United States was not in the war. Um, and so in this way, you know, y y you see these examples of individuals who it's almost precisely because they're outsiders or they're not the main political leaders. They can kind of advance the the needs or pathways of diplomacy. Terry, you got a question? Uh, yes, Michael. I had read that approximately 191 countries, which the U.S. has diplo diplomatic relations with, 27 of them have never had a woman ambassador. Um, and they tend and women ambassadors tend to be in countries that are less central to U.S. foreign policy. Uh, for example, I read that uh, China, Germany, and Saudi Arabia had never had a, a female ambassador. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there, I think there is, um, you know, it, it's important when talking about women in, in roles in diplomacy to distinguish between kind of the actual women who are playing prominent roles and their experiences. That's one important category. 
Another important category is this kind of the image of women just generally, right? I mean, and and in this case, just to be very kind of frank about it, it's men thinking about what women, what role women can play. And, you know, we have seen kind of in a lot of, you know, of these sort of um, kind of diplomatic settings, um, a female ambassador becoming a kind of a signal or a symbol to the United States that, oh, well, women, women have a sort of progressive view or women have, are making progress in our society. Um, you might remember that uh, in the run-up to the, um, the Iraq War in 2003, there was a lot of discussion about you know, Americans' presence and a, and a war was really about kind of the, the, the fate or the lives of Iraqi women. Um, so I think it's the the number of diplomats that are in these various um, sort of you know the groups or the, these for these various nations. It's almost become something of a kind of a symbolic football, you know, where where it it serves the purpose of the kind of the larger sense of connection to the United States, where you have a number of you know increasingly um, prominent uh, political women. So. Um, and, you know, as for the few who still don't, for the many who don't have it, I mean, J- Japan was quite late, um, which is interesting because, you know, Japanese women have been prominent in um, in various ways in Japanese politics, but not, not so prominent. That is to say they've had the franchise in Japan since 1946, so a couple decades after the United States. But it was somewhat surprising um, that it waited until 2001, for example. And then they've had like three since then. They've had a number of uh, people who are the the foreign minister. Um, And I should mention the, um, I'm pretty certain the first American ambassador to Japan who was a woman was um, uh, Carolyn Kennedy, um, I think, uh, which was only 2012, I believe. Really? Really? Michael, I, and I should just say that that at the same time it was the same thing. She was like, "Oh, you know, it's a Kennedy," and so it, it and and she's brings a very different sort of person um, to the role where they've had you know more sort of either traditional diplomats or they you know it's a prominent country in American foreign policy, so they just have prominent individuals. They may not know anything at all about Japan, but they are prominent. And Carolyn Kennedy was again like that. She was a kind of great kind of cultural ambassador in Japanese eyes. Michael, I'm I'm interested. We've kind of tap danced around this a bit, um, the the whole show, but um, talk about you know if you just look at the three U.S. Um, secretaries of state that have been women, uh, they're very different women. You you have mm-hmm. um, you know sort of a a hawkish moderate in in uh, Hillary Clinton. Condoleezza Rice came in as a conservative. Um, and Madeleine Albright was kind of a, a moderate with, with some uh, sort of liberal leanings. Um, so my, I guess my question is, how much of an impact does a female Secretary of State have on policy decision-making? Yeah, just using those three as examples, were they significant in policy decision, or was this a situation where where men, whether that's the the president or the joint chiefs or whatever, were still really making the policy, and they were just uh, sort of the uh, the face of the policy. I think each one of them had a a pretty significant role in shaping 
the, the, the policy of each of their administrations. But I think one of the great ironies, and it may be true for everyone who becomes Secretary of State, not just women, but it's certainly true in the case of these three individuals, um, they almost become different from what they had always been. <laughs> that is to say, Madeleine Albright was a kind of a great, kind of, as you say, kind of cultural internationalist with kind of liberal leanings, but, you know, confronted with the... Um, the, the Bosnian genocide, you know, the, 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 the Clinton administration made a, you know, an, a frankly, you know, important military intervention there that was only marginally successful. Um, and and that's a kind of an important feature of her time there. Similarly, Condoleezza Rice, you mentioned something of a, of a traditional, you know, conservative, what we'd call a realist. Um, and she became actually the spokesperson for this kind of transformational diplomacy that was a little bit, you know, more staunchly aggressive and interventionist, which was not really where she stood intellectually anyway before going uh, joining that administration. So it's kind of ironic that, and I kind of comment on this. It's almost more true when you get to the Pacific because the Pacific area has has really not been the center of foreign policy at any of these times. Um, other ish, even though every one of these administrations is saying, oh, you know, the Pacific is more important. Our relationship with China is important. Dealing with North Korea is important. Um, everyone sort of keeps yearning to turn to Asia, and, and the Biden, potential Biden administration has kind of already said this as well. Asia is going to be important, but among those three individuals, their foreign policies in East Asia are, are mostly similar. Um, that is to say, not very transformational, not very disruptive. None of them could really solve the North Korea problem. They kind of did okay, but it just sort of muddled along, which maybe is in some ways a solution to the North Korea problem. It may be kind of hard to solve in a in a totalizing sense. Um, the question I have is, is we have this, um, again, as you're saying, that we have um, – women that have stepped up to the uh taken part in foreign policy um are there other countries that have um in europe or other areas that have had women i mean when you mentioned that germany ha germany has not had or terry mentioned germany has not had a or you did i'm sorry a uh, woman that was an ambassador that really kind of surprised me because miss merkel is definitely a force uh in germany so are there other countries that have had women step forth like the united states where they's had a greater role in foreign policy for their countries Yeah, I, you know, one of the interesting things about cultural ambassadorship is that sometimes it doesn't even need to be someone who's in a diplom diplomatic role. And, and obviously the royals in the U.K., um, uh, uh, you know, are kind of um, Im important um, in that uh, um, in that regard. Um, you know, I think if you look at... Um, um, the the French the I'm totally blanking on her name, but anyway the the head of the, um, the International Monetary Fund, um, who was a you know a prominent um, uh, French um, uh, Christine Lagarde I can't believe it took me so long to think of her name she's now the head of the president of the Central European Bank she was someone who was kind of a prominent person in politics but you know her role and her prominence for example during the financial crisis and um, and subsequently, as a kind of a pillar of kind of the economic order, is pretty prominent in that regard. But I don't believe she ever held. I'm not. I don't remember her holding a um, uh, 
a, a diplomatic post. Um, and then uh, I was running Kristalina Georgieva, who, who is, in fact, the next managing director, who has uh, been managing director of the International Monetary Fund, is a Bulgarian, um, um, showing the kind of the advance of women into these kind of important multilateral organizations that then play a prominent role in kind of how the international system functions. Okay. Rick, you got a question? Yes, I do. Uh, the uh, Michael, you made a comment earlier about uh, the what we call in international politics the Asian pivot, the United States to uh, to Asian, uh, and that it hasn't happened. Why hasn't it happened? What what has stopped American diplomats uh, uh, to pivot and emphasize Asia? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know, maybe rabbit holes. That is to say, we, we, it's easy to chase down a rabbit hole. It, it, it's sure. a classic problem of dip, diplomacy and foreign policy, right? You get the problems and crises that present themselves, not the ones you get to choose. You know, you're always, you have a mul multiplicity of responses to every eventuality, and then something comes along that you're not sort of ready to um, address. I think it's, there's no question that the last, you know, sort of four to eight years, you know, the well, or, or longer. I mean, the North Korean issue has been prominent. Um, that is a, a kind of a um, a global problem because it has to do with nuclear um, non uh, non proliferation. Um, it also, I think, is a problem of of um, um, kind of a tension. That is to say. Um, We've not developed yet um, a formula or a plan for dealing um, with Asia. Um, the Clinton, um, under the, the uh, uh, Obama administration, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a major approach to kind of that pivot that we were talking about. Well, we, under the, the, um, the Trump administration, we withdrew from that. Um, and then that group just signed uh, uh, RCEP, the, this uh, new free trade agreement, um, that leaves the United States out, and the, the Biden administration is going to have to think about getting back in. So a lot of the last decade or so has been kind of a halting approach to defining what what is America's place in, in that area. And um, I guess I would just add one, one other confounding factor in East Asia is the Cold War is over almost everywhere, but not entirely over in East Asia. That is, say, the structure of things in East Asia still basically looks like the Cold War um, dynamic. That is to say, North and South Korea are still divided and, and bitter enemies. The United States has a huge military presence in South Korea, Japan. Um, the uh, the civil war between or the the war between china or the prc um and the antagonism and and separation of the taiwan uh, the island of taiwan you know that still continues that's a, a, a an element of the cold war um so in all of these ways the cold war is still there um and that uh cold war structures are there but it's not necessarily dealing with issues that are post cold war and issues that are post cold war are things like the emergence of china as an economic superpower okay um, we're going to give you uh, the last minute to sit there and say, why do you sit there and think of knowing about women leaders in democracy in the Pacific region or other places is relevant in today's world? I, I think like lots of issues in history, when we try to kind of peel back the layers and say, okay, we haven't really noticed or paid as much attention to certain features um, or certain elements um, 
you know, the presence of women in foreign policy is there. It's, we're often not aware of it. Um, or, um, and sort of this recent sort of spate of, you know, secretaries of state and prominent women has kind of highlighted something that was probably true before, but we weren't all that um, um, clear on it or, or um, paying much attention to it. Um, but as I said earlier, I think it speaks to um, that, that a lot of foreign policy these days, a lot of diplomatic initiatives are very much up for grabs. We, we um, are trying to redefine things and um, reinvent a kind of a post-Cold War world, um, and that process is, is frankly still going on. And so I think it, it's not so much there is both the arrival and presence of prominent women who will play important roles, but it's also a reflection on the, the larger transformation of the system. And then I think that's why it's particularly um, important to kind of look at these moments where there's this great either potential or uncertainty or a chance for kind of reinvention in foreign policy. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 392nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapto. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Schneider, professor of history, provost, and dean of the college at Knox College. And we've been talking with him about women leaders in diplomacy across the Pacific. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.